Well, I'm uh, very pleased to be joined by such an esteemed panel at a time of exceptional results for tanker owners. Uh, with limited fleet growth through to 26, 27, many felt this market was ripe for a return pre the Russian-Ukraine war. But of course, this has triggered significant growth in Ton Mile and became the catalyst for this return of the market. This also comes at a time as we've just been hearing of regulation change across the shipping industry with decarbonisation affecting investment decisions and the finance that supports them. Even if those decisions are clear, asset values have risen sharply and competition for new building berths from other sectors is high. Add into all this a changing macro environment with higher interest rates and uncertainty around China's economy, and this makes for very interesting times, none more so for them for the crude sector. So the representatives from a large portion of the crude fleet are uh, very pleased to hear your views. I think everybody maybe do a short introduction. Uh, Brian Gallagher, uh, Executive Committee Member of Euronav, uh, Lars Barstad, CEO of Frontline, Pankaj Khanna, CEO of Hydemar, uh, and Jeff Prebor, CEO, CFO of International Seaways. So I'd like to start with a general market view, and perhaps Pankaj, I'll come to you here first. Are we in the midst of a long-term bull market, or is this another false dawn driven by short-term geopolitical events? Uh, the IEA just published a report this morning which called for the dawn of fossil fuels and basically says that by the end of this decade, uh, fossil fuels will be in perennial decline. Uh, while you know the, this dawn has been called for the last 50 years by many, uh, we have never seen that so far. So, I mean, if you ask me where we are in the tanker cycle, uh, I think we are seeing something which is slightly different than what we have seen in the past. Uh, if we go through the factors on demand and supply, uh, demand is quite strong, consumption is high, uh, refinery throughputs are quite strong, refinery margins uh, are at almost 30 bucks a barrel for certain refineries. Uh, so on the demand side, we cannot see anything negative in the, let's say, near term. And that's despite the fact that we are in a a high interest rate uh, environment. Despite that, economies are doing relatively well. Uh, the different thing this time is on the supply side. Uh, in the past, if we were in markets like what we are right now, uh, the ship owners would be running to the yards and ordering ships like crazy. Uh, but we're not seeing that. So the order book today on the crude side is just under 4%. On the products, it's 9%. Uh, overall, it's about 7%-ish. Uh, fleet growth this year is only 1.7%, so probably at the record low in the recent history. Uh, so supply side as well is not a huge concern, especially in an environment where yard prices are very high. Uh, if you go to a yard today, you probably get a VLCC in 2026 for maybe 125, 130 million. Uh, the uncertainty about that is, of course, the fuel. Uh, just based on the prior discussion, you know, what do you go for? Do you go for dual fuel uh, with gas? Do you go for methanol? Uh, so there's a lot of uncertainty about that. Uh, and so therefore, again, uh, we don't see whole-scale ordering. Uh, it's very unusual where we have a VLCC order book of only 18 vessels. Uh, we have about four vessels left for delivery this year, and I count only one vessel for 2024. I mean, I don't remember a year in my career when we had one VLCC coming in a year. So uh, I think from a demand supply standpoint, we are in a, a very strong position. We see markets which can be sustained at least for the couple of years. 
Uh, add to that uh, what has happened with the uh, ton-mile distance, with the war, but also new trades such as Guyana coming up, where we see an increase in ton-mile on crude and products. Uh, that adds again to the demand side. And uh, not even talking about the shadow fleet, the ghost fleet, and et cetera, how those ships could be marginalized. Uh, so I think what we really need in the market now is sentiment. We're coming into the winter months, and I see that uh, if uh, the winter is normal, not even a very cold winter, but a normal winter, I think we will get the sentiment to push the markets back up to uh, you know, historical highs. Lars, coming to you here, do, do you feel that this uh, $90 oil and Saudi here, noise of Saudi Arabia, aiming for $100 oil, what, what effect do you think that has on building this sentiment uh, through the fourth quarter and especially given consideration to price cap at the moment? Well, <clears throat> I think kind of the biggest challenge we have in this equation is that, um, you know, we apparently have uh, north of $100 million, sorry, million barrels per day of demand. Um, we have, uh, you know, a million barrels per day plus uh, kind of lower output from OPEC. We have Russia struggling on exports, and we actually don't have a higher uh, oil price. So, so I think that's kind of a little bit of a worrying part of this equation. Uh, but just circling back to, to the previous comments here, um, I think people fail to recognize that the current order book on tankies is at levels we saw last in 1996. Um, I wasn't even in the tanker market at that time. Uh, whilst oil demand has obviously grown uh, substantially since that time. So unless we see oil demand kind of fall off a cliff over the next five, six years, um, you know, we have actually good visibility to uh, transportation of oil being a kind of a scarce uh, commodity uh, going forward. So, so, so that's to the longevity of this market. I, I think it's tremendously bullish and I struggle to see what can kind of trip this story uh, where we are now. Brian, Jeff, you tend to agree? Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the, the fundamentals that Lars pointed to there are very, very encouraging. Uh, they're very structural. Um, and I think it's reflected in what we've seen year to date in that we've had uh, counter seasonal rallies both in March and also in June, which reflect the tightness of the market. We're seeing good activity in the time charter market, which uh, we reflected last week. Uh, and there's ongoing discussions there. It just feels just very, very positive setup. Um, on the, and on the lines we all want, I think, to investors to start looking up. Rather than looking to try and time this tactically on a year-by-year -year basis, we feel this is a lot of parallels with 2004 to 2008 as a tanker cycle. Um, and it alludes to what Lars said there in terms of some of the dynamics and data points being, uh, you have to go back 30 years or more to find a similar sort of a background. So yes, it feels that there's a very positive setup. I know short term, everyone's waiting for this uh, winter rally to start, um, but we're in very, very good shape. I'll just, the last word then is I know we're on the crude tanker, tanker panel, but as Lars knows, having some product tankers too, they're, they're doing quite well. So the point of that is, is the market is finally balanced. And uh, you know, it, it, there's every indication that the temporary drop to not very bad levels in, in the bigger crude is, is just that temporary. So the market's finally balanced and, and, uh, and there's no reason not to get on board with the sentiment I've heard from everybody else.
I think kind of to, to just to add to the longevity here, I think kind of the, the, the previous panel, uh, uh, you know, kind of underpinned that, that there is no easy answer here. And, uh, you know, we're all kind of trying to, to act responsibly uh, on behalf of our shareholders and uh, we simply cannot risk uh, their shareholders' money on kind of that kind of uncertainty going forward. Hence, you know, you are reluctant to... To, to build anything uh, going forward. I guess that comes nicely onto my next point. Um, you know, shipping, obviously, as we've heard in many panels today, is very much in the spotlight when it comes to emissions um, and it obviously creating an increasingly regulated burden on, on the owners. Uh, Brian, is this focus on shipping its carbon footprint misplaced when it remains, frankly, the most efficient form of transportation? Um, or do you see alternative fuels and the conversation we've just heard with with uh, Martin and, and Nicholas creating a pathway to, to these IMO targets? No, it, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a, it's a very, very um, uh, sort of arresting topic, but um, our view would be very simple in that what you've got is that, as you say, shipping's got a natural advantage. It's, what, 40 times more efficient than road transportation, 85 times more efficient in terms of emissions than air transportation. Um, we shouldn't use that, lose that opportunity. Um, all of us are doing lots of initiatives. The shipping industry, and as, as, as Martin and Chris said, uh, are doing an awful lot of work in terms of the, the initiatives that are coming through. We can do a lot of work between now and 2030. We're all going to reduce our emissions by 40% in terms of our carbon intensity. Um, the Poseidon principles are a big backbone to that. But after that, you really need some uh, heavy lifting. I like Chris's phrase earlier with regard to um, it's got to be a team sport. It has to be a collaborative responsibility then, uh, and that's what shipping needs to prove between now and 2030, we believe. Um, we have our, our own net zero um, approach since uh, for 18 months now, to be net zero by 2050, if not before. Um, and I think that's the point. We need to prove ourselves in order to get a seat at that table uh, and then have that collaboration, uh, because it, it's absolutely, as both the previous panelists said, it's a huge capital investment program that's required. Um, but shipping can prove it's, uh, it's worth its seat at the table uh, in doing what it can do between now and 2030. Is it going to be teamwork or, you know, we see EU ETS, fuel EU maritime coming in. Is this, is this teamwork or is this going to be a forced approach onto the owners in form of taxation? Probably a bit of both, I think. Um, but I think in some respects, uh, chartering organisation, uh, chartering, uh, um, if you like, reflections of having uh, time charters which will have uh, either duration or inbuilt emissions element to it. Emissions are going to become part of the conversation rather than just dollars, in our view. And that's where it becomes a collaboration, because the dollars will count in the end. So I think it will do. It just needs to have that, that, that penny to drop with everybody. Uh, but it's beginning to happen, and it's encouraging. We've got things like the University of London last week saying that the IMO approach will deliver net zero by 2050. So we have the framework in place. It's about us, if you like, filling in the, the colours. And in the short term, Lars, how do you, how do you manage that EU ETS uh, taxation and, and how do you position the fleet according to that? Well, the most important part for us is that, um, you know, as ship owners, we're merely transporters of goods, uh, which is going to end up with end uses. And then obviously the cost of carrying that should end up with end uses as well. Um, so, you know, we need to manage, obviously, the uh, data, our, our emissions data. We need to market our ships uh, kind of based on, um, you know, the respective uh, kind of emission reduction we can offer transporters. 
now I think it's over to kind of our clients to potentially um, kind of figure out how they're going to pick up the bill because it's not uh, the owners that can kind of subsidize um, the EU ETS uh, going forward. And regretfully, what we've seen so far is that kind of predominantly our, our clients, you know, the guys that actually do our day-to-day -day business with, uh, are not particularly interested in, in paying for anything that's emission reduction, you know, reduces emissions in any, any way. It's a bit like you guys coming, going into a cab here in London. You know, do you really pay more for the electrical cab rather than the, the, the petrol cab? Uh, well, most of you probably don't. And, and it's the same kind of reality we're exposed to. And this is why I actually believe in the EU ETS potentially having a, a real impact because uh, if the owners can actually transfer the cost, uh, it's going to you know, put a real focus on the offering uh, you know, a kind of a conscious owner has to, to his clients. Uh, I think we will get into a situation where we will have a multi-tier market. Uh, we operate ships which are brand new, one year old, to ships that are in their teens. And the ETS will have a real impact in pricing those vessels. So transportation will be price basis how those vessels perform in terms of their fuel consumption. At this point, a charter does not care about what the fuel consumption is on board the vessel unless it's on a time charter to him. And most of the transportation today is still on the spot market. I think going forward, they will start to care. And so that will create a tiered approach to rating vessels in the market, and that's how we see that the market will price uh, vessels based on what their consumption or eventually their emissions are. And maybe just one more word. Um, I completely agree with you, Lars, that we need customers to be more engaged on this, but there are examples, and we're fortunate to have one. We have three dual-fuel LNG vessels that are on the seven-year charter to a, an oil major, so I, I, I would encourage other customers, whether they're oil majors, refiners, national oil companies, whatever, just step up and do that as well. Um, but uh, I agree, we can't do it without the their cooperation. I guess that leads us on if we, um, there's uncertainty on future fuels, the direction, how to invest. Yeah, there's no doubt the investment is needed. Um, yeah, if you look at the average age of VLCC, as I was just mentioning earlier, just over 11 years old and very little in the order book. Though with higher asset values today, how does one balance market return today against a future-proof fleet? And if you are investing today or, or in t indeed thinking of when to invest, is that new building second-hand or, or simply it's a wait-and-see? Um, Jeff, we've seen you active in the new building space recently. Is, what's the thought process there in terms of um, investing today? Well, that's, I would call that the exception that proves the rule. Um, I think that, like some other uh, responsible owners, we achieved our fleet renewal and growth at the more the bottom of the cycle. So for the last four or five quarters, we've been allocating virtually all of our free cash flow to either returns to shareholders or incremental deleveraging beyond our scheduled uh, amortization. So we really haven't been and would be relatively reluctant to make investments in, in uh, assets right now, A, because we don't need to, and B, because in general they're expensive and the right capital allocation is, is to the other, those other areas. But we've always said that when there's a, a fairly 
specialized, shall we say, or unique value proposition, then then uh, then we will put our money there. And uh, for us, the, the new buildings that we have contracted in the R1 section uh, sector uh, fit the bill. We we are spending more on them to be ready to convert in the future, and it's real money, not just greenwashing. And uh, we factored in expenditure down the road to either carbon capture or to an alternative, we don't know which one, an alternative fuel because we don't know what it'll be yet. We factored that into our business model and found that it met our criteria, so we moved ahead. So that, but I think that's kind of the exception that proves the rule. And Lars, you were pretty vocal last week that today wasn't the, the climate for investment. Where, what is that investment horizon from your perspective? No, it's, uh, and I've said it a few times, so on, um, on the new building side, you know, we, we kind of the, the returns we demand in order to have some sort of uh, kind of useful uh, economics in, in ordering a new vessel, considering the delivery time, which is, uh, you know, if you're lucky, late 2026 or early 2027. We, we don't see that kind of as a, as a, as a proposition, but obviously the, the, there might be special cases. Uh, you know, the clear answer is you would uh, just go out in the second hand market and buy whatever you can get hold of. The thing is that there is nothing really on offer. You know, price discovery in the second-hand market, particularly in the modern second-hand market, is extremely difficult to come about. You know, ship owners have a tendency to either sell when they're in panic mode and about to go bankrupt, or kind of other opportunistic point, point, uh, points in the curve. But right now, I think kind of we, you know, everyone are, are, are seeing kind of the fundamental backdrop here. Um, you know, most owners have had uh, good years either in other segments or in tankers now more recently. So, you know, people are just holding on to their assets. And, and this is why I've said in a few times at Frontline where, you know, unless, unless kind of an opportunity arises, we'll be in harvest mode here. And Brian, I guess that's it's the same for you now, obviously opportunistic recent activity. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think as, as Lars alluded to, the, it's the delivery schedule, which is which is uh, very important for us. We've had a one-off uh, opportunistic uh, development where we've taken a VLCC for delivery in mid-26, um, but that's very much the exception. Uh, but I, I, I concur with everything Lars just said. I guess it's one thing deciding when to uh, to make investments, but you know, we're also faced by new challenges in financial markets and and with higher interest rates, initiatives such as Poseidon Principles, which we've been hearing about today. Um, Jeff, what's your experience on the financing side of crude vessels, and how do you think that's going to affect the space going forward? Well, I was thinking about the Poseidon Principles just uh, in, in preparing for this uh, panel. And, you know, it, it's been really fantastic uh, for, for shipping. And, and I don't mean that in some rah-rah way, you know, isn't it good? To, to care about the environment, of course we do. But it, but just think back. Just I'm sure most of the people in the room will remember that they, they came in. I don't know if it was 2018 or 2019, but I remember, you know, at one of these conferences and one in New York and here, and then the Global Maritime Forum is being talked about. And I said, gee, that sounds great. You know, reducing emissions along the trajectory of the Paris Accords. And how do I get in? And the, all the banks said, well, you don't. It's, it's for us, not for you, right? So it, it was a bank thing. I'm like, what does that make any sense? I mean, what, what? But then we found a way, which was to work with our banks to put sustainability clauses into our bank loans. And we did that beginning in 2020, and it's pretty commonplace nowadays. You know, it's very convenient to have the Poseidon principles there with a framework to do that, which allows us all to uh, further our ESG agendas, which is a good thing in itself. But it's even 
better than that, which is if we looked at, say, the offshore sector, which can't attract capital, can't ha bank capital, particularly out of Europe, is not able to be allocated to certain sectors of the industry, of the energy industry, whereas we are very fortunate, whether it's Euronav, Frontline, Hybar ourselves, we're, we're able to attract bank capital in, not just because we're running a good company, but think, think, uh, in large part because the Poseidon principles mean that these banks, especially European banks that have ESG agendas outside the shipping group, are still able to allocate capital to shipping. And that's, uh, we're very fortunate. So that's my view on the Poseidon principles, been a, been a good thing. And the, my view on the interest rates, look, uh, I was just thinking about, Lars, you said 1996, you weren't in shipping yet. That's when I started in shipping. So uh, I was a generalist before that, but I got involved in shipping in 1996. So if I look at those 26, 27 years, maybe half of them have been in this low interest rate environment, but the first half were at interest rates very much like what we're seeing today, you know, long, long rates of 4 or 5%. So shipping companies made money sometimes and didn't make money other times. There was a cycle. Uh, we were able to finance ships. Um, so I don't see uh, the, this slightly higher interest rate environment as, as something to, uh, it is what it is. We're, we're all going to pay it, uh, but, it's, but it's quote unquote normal. Fortunately for us also, spreads and margins are, are tight. So whether it's the bond market or the margin in the shipping uh, loan market, we're able, to, uh, many of us are able to, to borrow at that, that very favorable spreads over a higher base rate. So I think it's all very manageable. Pankaj, you're nodding along. Do you, do you see this higher interest rates for a longer period? Is that, is that skewing your strategy today in terms of attracting owners into the operating pools? Uh, do, you, do you see these higher interest rates for a longer period? Is that affecting your ability to, to, to attract owners into pools, etc.? Uh, not directly. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, some owners come to pools because uh, we provide monthly cash flow. That's provided by a facility that we have uh, with Macquarie Bank, and obviously interest rates are high now. Uh, that affects cash flow. So, uh, but at the same time, the markets being where they are, I think uh, it supports the higher interest rates at this point. If uh, tanker rates stay at low levels, then it starts to bite. And I think uh, it also has an impact on the more longer-term investment horizon rather than on the short-term, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, on the pooling side, people make the decision to come to pools because, uh, you know, small owners, uh, you know, we talked about this uh, in, on the earlier panel about all these uh, changes coming up. Uh, we didn't talk over here about uh, all these ESG regulations coming on. Uh, small ship owners with one, two, three vessels cannot operate the same way as their panel members over here can. So that's where we have a role and people come to us for that. We're talking about the EU ETS scheme. You can imagine if you are a two, three ship owner, to even set up an account uh, to trade uh, the EUAs and so on is difficult. And uh, you know people are not prepared for that. Again, pools have a role where we provide a service where we'll be able to uh, trade the EUAs for the owners. So the drivers for pooling are different than just the high interest rates. Uh, uh, I think it's important uh, also to note, uh, and I know I said this way too much, but the thing is, that, you know, the interest rate is obviously a cost we would love to transfer to our clients. Uh, you know, it's a cost of running, it's a cost of owning, um, and the cost of, of uh, kind of, uh, you know, supplying a service. And that brings us to kind of, we are in an inflationary environment. 
uh, we've seen inflation kind of hit on, on you know, marginal building costs and so forth, on raw material to build ships and so forth, but we've yet to kind of see that manifest itself properly in freight rates. But uh, I'm pretty sure that will come. And with the Poseidon principles, do you, from a larger sort of company perspective, are you looking further east now from a, is that affecting your decision making because of the ESG requirements? Do you see Asian finance filling a hole there or, or are you very much in, li in line with the Poseidon principles? No, we're very much in line and we're quite fortunate for running a very young fleet. So, so it's, it's not kind of really much to give, to be quite honest. We, we like sustainable linked financing just for the reasons uh, Jeff said as well. It's, uh, you know, it, it opens up the door to, to conscious owners uh, to, to, to get capital to invest, uh, whilst it might be harder for, for, for others uh, in, the, in, the, in, the kind of in the tanker space that, uh, that might not have the, that same interest in, in, uh, in mind. So, so, um, but it, it doesn't really affect our investment decision uh, per se, uh, but uh, you know, it's a financing offering that we like and we utilize. And Brian, you've been quite active in the in the leasing market to kind of China. Is that is that purely on a economics basis, or uh, a little bit of both? I mean, um, in terms of our sustainability financing, we're up to nearly two thirds uh, of our financing book is uh, from uh, our sustainability features, along the lines of what both Lars and, and Jeff have said. It's it's moving more and more east. Yes, I mean the the European banks, I think, have reduced their funding to shipping since 2010, according to Ecofin, by more than half. So we're having to find different uh, pockets. Um, we, we face that challenge, um, and you have to sort of find new, new players. But uh, as both the guys have said, it's, it's, it, the, the opportunity is there. You just have to produce, uh, prove your credentials. So presumably with um, more and more complication in this market, uh, the opportunity for bigger companies to exploit economies of scale, um, a multifaceted approach to investment and finance, it would be remiss of me with this panel um, to not ask the question of, of whether consolidation is the key to a successful future of a tanker market. Um, Lars, you've been quite active in there, so perhaps the audience would like to hear from you first. It's funny how, how consolidation always lands uh, kind of in my end of, uh, <laughs> of every panel. Uh, you should see what he's scribbling down yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, I, but, but I think kind of uh, Pankaj touched on it. You know, th there is actually a lot of consolidations going on uh, with a you know, far more complicated regulatory world to live in. Um, also, as we you know we move forward, it's going to be even tighter. We also, in the previous panel, discussed uh, kind of future propulsion and technologies and so forth. And you know, smaller owners, although they really really want to be ship owners, uh, it might not be feasible to to do these investments um, themselves. And then uh, they will go to pools. So, so pool is is like kind of you know. Uh, the consolidating party, um, kind of away from merger and acquisitions. When it comes to, to, to building large units and, 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 uh, and uh, you know, economies of scale, I, I, and I think this was said, you know, when we were in, in discussions with Euronow as well, it's not necessarily, you know, to merge the two biggest uh, kind of guys on the street uh, that, that creates a lot of, um, of uh, kind of uh, consolidation benefit to the market, but it's more kind of the, the smaller marginal owners. And, um, you know, we are in the shipping industry and we, we, we cannot, cannot forget that. And the shipping industry is dominated by ship owners and ship owners like to own their ships. They're not that, you know, they're, they're kind of, the, the population of non-listed smaller ship owners is far larger 
than than the listed ones. So uh, so it's just in the natural kind of DNA of shipping that the consolidation is very difficult to to achieve. So we end up having you know 70 counterparties uh, kind of within a couple of weeks in the Afromax market and. and uh, you know whether if we can do something about it, I don't know. Um, but uh, you know, as long as as long as everybody kind of work out of the same knowledge base, um, I, I think that's the kind of the, probably one of the the larger benefits of of uh, consolidation is that tankers has historically been an extremely non-efficient market where information is not shared at all, and particularly not between cargo holders and, and ship owners. Um, that's still the case. But uh, you know there is a lot of uh, tools out there in order to make a more qualified decision, and we we tend to see that the larger outfits are able to make the more qualified decisions rather than the smaller ones, and and that you know would benefit uh, a lot by by uh, um, consolidation. Brian, <laughs> um, a number of things really. I mean, uh, again without wishing to repeat uh, what I said earlier, I, I agree with a lot of Lars's points. I mean, on the, on the commercial consolidation, you know, we, we were the founder in 1999 of the Tankers International Pool. We're a very big fan of pooling arrangements. That's a relatively low-risk way, um, which, you know, Jeff and his, his VLCCs are, in, are involved in that. Um, and uh, Lars, uh, as company, has been involved in the past on a joint venture basis. So it's, it, there is consolidation opportunities. Um, everyone looks at the M&A and looks at the opportunities there. Um, and of course, it, looks, it makes a lot of exciting talk. If you look on an ec econometric model on the VLCC sector, if you have a complete monopoly of one company in charge of a market getting 10,000 points and a completely free market being naught points, the VLC, sector, the VLCC sector scores 200 points. So it doesn't get more fragmented or free competition than the VLCC sector. So as Lars has said, there's opportunities that consolidation, and it's not a coincidence that the bigger companies make better returns. But again, as he said earlier, um, it's got to be done at the right price. It has to be done on the right forum and the right structure. Um, and I'm sure you're all aching to know uh, some uh, conversation on our own situation. We've got two very big shareholders. Um, Lars is the third biggest, so I'm very <laughs> conscious he sat next to me. But seriously, um, the two biggest shareholders, one of them's got a 50-year track record investing in shipping with a very successful track record, and not just in tankers, but other shipping segments. And the other um, major shareholder has got 50 years experience and helped found Euronav initially. They know the value of every nut and bolt of the company. So shareholders shouldn't be concerned about that. Their, their interests are more aligned than most other companies that are out there in, in shipping or other, other sectors. So consolidation, we have always believed is a good thing. I've been at Euronav for 10 years. I've been lucky enough to be a part of two transactions, the Maersk transaction in 14 and the Generate transaction in 2018, uh, and it does work, but it doesn't have to be M&A, it can also be via the pools, um, but it has to be done in the right structure and, the, and at the right price. I would just want to say that the small ship owners have made a lot of money, and they're not going away. Uh, you look at what's happened in dry cargo, over 21, 22, all those guys want to become tanker owners. You look at the tanker owners, the amount of money that's been made in the last 18 months, they're not going away. So to create the consolidation, the efficiency, that will be done in a different way because what you see at the top level with the large companies is a small fraction of the total market. The total market is still highly fragmented and it's likely to stay that way in terms of ownership 
but in terms of operating, whether that be technical management or commercial management, that's where the consolidation is happening. That. And just a quick history lesson, uh, since a couple of people have mentioned it, uh, Tankers International, founded in 1999 by, as you say, Euronav, I think Maersk at the time, our predecessor company, OSG, and Lars, I think it was Frontline, right? And uh, I think it was hatched up in part to be the grandest M&A deal ever, and when there, people realized that that was just not going to happen, they said, let's do something more practical that we can do. Let's pool our resources and, and, and uh, achieve a, a degree of consolidation, and it's been quite successful. Uh, so that's, that's the history lesson. And, and the other thing I think is when this question gets asked, it's always with the inference that, gee, there hasn't been any consolidation or has there been enough. Well, there will be more, but there has been a lot. You know, there has been a lot. Uh, Brian mentioned it. I, I worked at Gemmar. Gemmar became, when I became a banker, I helped Gemmar become generate, and then uh, Euronav came along and we split it up between the two of us. And so I think you've got some ships, Brian, that, that, that I may have financed when I was CFO of Genmar, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, so, and it's, it's, it's to your point, Pankaj, as a private owner, you don't need to consolidate ownership so you can get the benefits in a pool. If you're publicly listed, though, there is a benefit to scale in terms of the, the size of the company and trading liquidity and attracting more investors. It was talked about at the panel before lunch this morning. We, we just still are a subscale industry in terms of the public trading of tanker shipping as well as tri-bulk. So there is a benefit to further consolidation, which I think will be you know, better liquidity and better, uh, better valuations. So uh, there has been a lot, there will be more. So the good news is that we can reconvene in a year's time, it looks like we'll be the same panelists, uh, not, not combined, uh, and, and sounds like good markets ahead. Uh, so thanks again to the panelists, and I uh, hope everyone enjoyed the discussion. Well,